But this Sunday we're looking at Acts chapter 17. And let me uh, read our text today. It's on page 1097. We're looking at verses 16 to 34. Let me read this passage. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now, what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them in the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. About a year ago, I uh, met a fellow and we got into a religious conversation. I was telling him that I was a pastor, and he was asking me what church, and I told him. And so I asked him, I said, do you go to church anywhere? And he said, yeah, but it's, it's a different church. He said, it's a spiritist church. I don't know if you ever heard of a spiritist church or a spiritualist church. And I'd had some familiarity with that. For those of you who have never heard of that, basically it's, it's not any kind of Christian church, even though it's called a church. But a spiritist church is a church where people try to get in touch with spirits. So it's kind of like mediumism, you know, where, where you're trying to connect with the spirits on the other side. And, and, and not only this, but this guy, uh, he said, you know, you, you know how you're a pastor. He said, I'm kind of training too for spiritual leadership. And he's basically training to be a shaman. So he, he was working under another shaman. He was studying uh, Native American spiritualism and, and so he was, you know, finding out who his spirit animals were and that kind of thing and, and sort of training uh, in, in this whole thing. 
um, you know, that was a different kind of conversation for me. Not usually what I encounter when I have religious conversations with folks from New England. You know, the typical New England religious conversation goes like this. I was raised Catholic, or I was raised congregational, or I was raised Methodist, and then I got disaffected with the church, but then, uh, I, I, but I'm still believe there's a God out there, but I'm not sure who, and you know, the main thing is trying to be a good person and, and raise your kids right, and that's all I'm trying to do. That's the usual conversation I have, not some white dude studying Native American theology to become a shaman in a spiritist church. It's very different. But the thing is, as America shifts more and more into a post-Christian footing in a post-Christian era, I think we're going to meet more and more people who have really no background in Judeo-Christian thought. They're not used to uh, sort of the people of the book mindset. And instead, we're going to find people with lots of different ideas. Not only that, but as globalization happens, you know, globalization is, is all over. And, you know, everyone from everywhere is moving everywhere, and so there's people from all over, living all over the place. We're increasingly seeing people from different nations living among one another. And as that happens, we will all be exposed to people from different religions than we're even used to, that we have any clue about. It's not just going to be, are you Protestant or Catholic? We're all going to be meeting Sikhs and uh, Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists and Taoists and Shintos and everything in between. That's the world of globalization. So a question then for us as Christians, as Christians who believe in the gospel, who want people to know this Jesus who's loved us and saved us, how how do we engage when people are are from a very different background and maybe are are from a very different religious experience and a very different culture? What what does that, that process of engagement look like? How do we do that? Maybe you know someone who is just from a very different perspective. Maybe you're here this morning and and this is very different for you. How do we we engage with that? Well, here we have the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 17. We're following Paul. He was one of the early followers of Jesus and he was one of the early missionaries of Christianity. He traveled throughout the Mediterranean world, and we've been tracking his journey each week. We're just studying a little bit more of Acts. We've been seeing his journey through Greece. He started in northeastern Greece, and he's been now traveling south, and, and now at last he comes to Athens. You know, Athens, the heart of Greek society. Athens is the epicenter of Greek culture and the epicenter of, of Greek religion and Greek literature and philosophy. You, you slice Athens and it just bleeds Greek culture. And here Paul is in a very different place where the Athenians really have no clue in, about Jewish or Christian backgrounds. They're very different. And so we're going to see this really interesting chapter that we just read about how Paul pressed into and related to these Athenians who are, are from a, a, just a radically different context and worldview. And so we're going to look at the story. It has three movements to it. And in each of these movements, we see Paul doing something different as he relates to the Athenian culture. And I think it's helpful for us to study. And so these three kind of phases to the story, three chapters to the story. The first one is this. We see that Paul, number one, crosses the boundaries. Paul is going to cross the boundaries. He's going to 
press into and step into their culture. That, that as he comes to encounter it, he's not going to hang back, but he's going to move in and engage and interact. Look at verse 16. When Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So here's Paul. He's walking around Athens, and it's full of statues. It's full of idols, idols everywhere. And, uh, and it distressed Paul, which is interesting because we know that Paul uh, was uh, well-traveled. He was a citizen of the world. He had seen idolatry before. This wasn't the first time he had seen these, these Greek people worshiping idols and statues. So, and, and yet here he's distressed in Athens, which tells us that Athens was kind of like over the top. Right? The, the idol worship in Athens was taken to a whole nother level. And we know archaeologically that that's true, that, that uh, archaeologists have uncovered lots of statues in Athens of all kinds of gods. I mean, as we're going to see, they even had a statue to the unknown god. Like, just in case we missed anybody, <laughs> we don't want some god out there being mad at us. So uh, that's for the guy we missed, and, you know, our bad, sorry, but there's your statue. These people, they're really into it. And, and notice that it distressed Paul. He was bothered by this. He's like, this is, ugh, this is not good. People worshiping statues. This isn't God. And it bothered him. And sometimes when we first encounter different, different views, different religions, sometimes it can distress us. You know, when I was talking to that guy who was practicing to become a shaman, that distressed me. I, I just wanted to like, it's like, dude, you're messing with bad stuff. You know, you're messing with demons. Like, don't go there. You know, run away. You know, I just want to tell him that. Uh, like, wow, this, this is scary. I remember when I was, uh, I spent, had the privilege of spending a summer in Taiwan, and that was my first encounter with uh, Taoism and, and the different uh, idols that they worship in Taiwan, and the Taoism is kind of connected to a form of idolatry where they, they have little statues set up and there's little shrines on the streets and temples and in the shrines and temples are little gods with little lights by them and it's you know, usually red lights so it's kind of you know, red and dark and it gives sort of a, a, you know, a creepy ambiance at least you know, to an American way of interpreting lights and colors. And I, I remember I was there in Taiwan when they had, I guess it would be the equivalent of like Halloween here. It was the, the day they believed the spirits came up from the grave and went around looking for people and things. And so anyway, all the, all the Taoist temples had these red lanterns hung up like this, like Vs leading into the temple to kind of like, like runway lights, like leading the spirits in. And I was walking around that night and, and here's all these red lit temples with statues and the lights calling the spirits in. I was distressed. I was like, man, Wow. This, is, this isn't just a cross-cultural experience like you try my food, I'll try your food. This is, this is dark. It was distressing. But here's what's so interesting about Paul. He was greatly distressed, a very strong emotional concern for what was happening. But what's his reaction? He crosses the border and moves in. Verse 17, so What? He reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. His reaction is different from what my instinctive reaction is. When I encounter something that very different and that very distressing, you know, my reaction, maybe like yours, is, whoa, back off. Don't engage. 
Don't go there. That's different. That, that's something that's disturbing. Don't, don't go with that. I, I, don't, I don't want to, to be infected or something. I, you know, whatever it is, that there's a, a sense of taboo and fear. But that's not what Paul did. He was deeply distressed. And so he said, well, I'm deeply distressed, therefore I need to get closer. I need to talk to these people. I need to engage them. And so he went to the synagogues, which was kind of his M.O., but he also went to the marketplace, the Greek marketplace, where he would have been talking to the everyday Athenian people, many of whom would have no background in, in kind of Judeo-Christian understanding of anything. And he, he moved in. And, and I think that's, that's a lesson for us that we need to, when we encounter differences, we need to press in and engage and not run away, not be like, wow, that's so different, that's so weird, I don't know what I'm going to say, I don't know how to encounter, just Go push in, start the conversation. And well, look what happens. That causes the Athenians to be distressed. Verse 18, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So again, they've never heard about Jesus. They've never heard about the resurrection. They never heard Jesus was risen from the dead, that he was crucified for our sins to save us and rose from the dead on the third day. They knew nothing about this. And so they're hearing about Jesus, and they're like, who? Is that a different God? What's he talking about? And then about the resurrection, and this really blew their minds. Because in in Greek thought, there was no category for resurrection. So if you ask like the average Greek person what happens when you die, they would have given you a couple answers. They might have said, well, I think you just cease to exist. You're like the match going out, poof. Or they might have said, your soul goes to Hades, into the underworld. That was Greek theology. But no Greek anywhere would have said, actually, you rise from the dead. You know, that, that just was not some, something that Greek people thought. And, and so here's Paul saying, yeah, so Jesus died and he rose again. And the, the Greeks are like, eh, what are you talking about? What is this babbler babbling about? We have no idea. We don't understand. By the way, just as an aside, I, I think that uh, in our own post-Christian culture in America, uh, I, I think people increasingly have a Greek view of what happens when we die, at least as I talk to people as I go to funerals and things and listen to people. You know, you guys have been to funerals and people try to comfort each other when someone is deceased. And what are the things people say? They say, well, he's in a better place now. I'm sure he's looking down on us. Or sometimes I've heard people say, you know, they're an angel now and they're right here with you. They're close. They're watching over us from the other side. Um, and, and ultimately, that's not the Christian hope. Our hope is that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead and that God will raise us. My hope is not that I'm going to float around in a better place, but that someday the same God who raised Christ from the dead will raise us from the dead and that we'll live in in a renewed body, in a a renewed world, that the same Jesus who did miracles of healing will, will do the ultimate miracle of healing and raise us forever. And so that's, we're going to say that, and, and I think increasingly that's going to sound different to people. They're going to be like, what? You believe what? Why do you believe that? That's so different. 
Well, anyway, Paul moved forward. And, and look at what happened. Because of that, a door opened up for him. Verse 19, they took him and they brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting and you're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we want to know what they mean. So because he didn't run away and say, wow, bad, scary, distressing, but instead he pushed in and he started talking, and then he heard these philosophers, and now they're bringing him to the Areopagus. The Areopagus was in Athens. It was a location, Mars Hill, but it was also a council that met there. And, and what they did in the Areopagus was that one of their responsibilities was to vet new teachings that came in. They were responsible for the education of the Athenians. So, so they would hear new teachings that, that would come in. So there, here's this new teaching. And then I love verse 21. It's kind of sarcastic. You know, all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there spent their time doing nothing but talking about listening to the latest ideas. Have you ever met people like that? They just like to debate about stuff. Just talk and debate. No, what about this? What about that? Well, what about, you know, and they're always just, they never want to do anything with it. They're never actually going to follow anything or believe anything or actually do something with their life. They don't want to make a decision and say, this is what I believe. They just like to, well, but what about blah, 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 you know. And uh, if, if, if that drives you crazy, you would have hated the Areopagus because that's what it was, just a lot of hot air and speculation all day. But here's the point. Paul crossed the boundary. He encountered a distressing worship of idols, and rather than saying, wow, that's spiritually dark, ooh, that's spiritual warfare, or some of the things we say that make us run away, he said, no, I, I need to engage. I need to cross the border. I need to go in. I need to talk. And because of his obedience, God opened a door for him to stand before the Areopagus. If Paul had just stayed quiet, he never would have stood before the Areopagus. But God opened a door because of his faithfulness to, to press in. So when we find ourselves in those different situations, engage, don't pull back, push in as God gives you opportunity. But here's the second thing Paul did. Let's move on to the second phase of the story. Paul not only crossed borders and boundaries, number two, he built bridges. So once the conversation started, he tried to find common ground. He, he tried to find connection points. He, he tried to help them understand each other. He wanted them to see why worshiping idols was distressing, but he had to kind of build a case for it and, and, and mutually explain things to each other. So look at verse 22. Look how he builds a bridge. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown god. Now, what you worship is something unknown. I am going to proclaim to you. So Paul, uh, he starts off very diplomatically, right? Which, I, again, I think that's really encouraging and interesting how he's done this. Paul, Paul is distressed, but, but as he approaches the Athenians, he doesn't sort of act out of his distress. Paul's opening words to the Athenians wasn't, now, my, now good Athenians, you're obviously all idiots, because you worship statues. Do you know how dumb that is? Let me tell you why that's stupid. <laughs> you know? He didn't start there. Even though he was distressed, his tone, his tone and his approach was one of respect and love. And, and that's part of what tolerance is. You know, we, we've totally redefined tolerance, in a, talk about stupid, in a stupid way today, where, where tolerance kind of means like it, everyone has to affirm everything that everyone believes. That's not what tolerance means. 
Tolerance means we can think each other are wrong. You can think I'm totally wrong and I can think you're totally wrong, but we still treat each other like human beings with civility. That's what real tolerance is. And so Paul is being tolerant. He, he is distressed that they're worshiping idols, but he's starting in a, a very gracious way. And so it's important that, that as we approach people and as we talk about differences, that as Christians, we, we always have to have that tone of love. Because even though he's distressed, he loves them. He wants them to know the Lord. He, he's distressed at the way they're thinking, but he cares about them as people. And so he starts with this gracious beginning. Oh, I see you're obviously very religious. You know, look, you've got all these gods. But now he says, I'm going to tell you who the God is. I'm going to tell you more about this God you don't know. And so in verses 24 to 28, he tells us about the God. So who is this God? Well, we learn three things in verses 24 to 28. Number one, this God is the creator. He's the creator. Verse 24 says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. God made the world. God made everything. These Athenians never read the Bible, but they've read another book. It's called the Book of Nature. And that's a common starting place. You can start with anybody with nature. You can look at the world around us and say, look at the, the universe. It's a beautiful thing. Um, we can all look at, at creation. And, and I would just argue, you can see the thumbprint of design and order and beauty and intentionality in the world around us. You know, go home this afternoon and Google Hubble telescope pictures. Look at the nebula. Look at the galaxy. It, it'll strike you as a work of art. It's aesthetically jarring and beautiful, and it's huge, and the scale is massive, and you realize we're just this little speck, right, in this huge galaxy. It's amazing. The whole universe is shouting to us of God's greatness and his majesty. Or take your eye from the telescope and put it on the microscope and look down into a cell. You think of a simple cell. There's no such thing as a simple cell. A cell is as complex as a galaxy. A cell is like a supercomputer, even more. They're amazing. Or think about DNA. You know, DNA is, is this, this incredible structure that carries information. That's the thing about DNA. It's not just complex, but it carries data. So you've got this super small little thing made up of proteins that carries data and causes processes to begin. It, it's, it's an incredible design. There's no computer we've made that comes anywhere near the human body and what God has designed. And so we, get, we see God's stamp upon these things, and God has shown us his reality in creation. There's order, and there's complexity, and there's design to it, which is astounding. I once had a conversation with an atheist um, guy. We were having dinner. The wife uh, was a Christian. The husband was an atheist, and we were hanging out at their house and uh, this guy was like super smart. Whoa! I mean, wow, the guy could, he knew more about physics and everything than I knew about anything. He was just so smart, one of those guys. Way smarter than I was, which actually isn't saying a lot, but he was really smart. Anyway, so as, but you know, so, so he could, I couldn't, you know, talk about physics or anything like that with him or science. But, but one time I just asked him, I said, Do you ever have a, any time where you feel like you might believe in God? That's as smart of a question as I could ask. <laughs> and, 
He said, yeah, I do. I was like, oh, well, when? He said, it's when I look into the faces of my children and I think there may be a God. Because here's the thing. When you look at your children, you know, and, and you see meaning and significance and value, and you think maybe there's some design and beauty and purpose to this. Because if you are a consistent atheist and a consistent materialist, you have to say, if you're going to be consistent, that there is no inherent value or meaning in a child. You have to look at a child and say, that's just a random conglomeration of cells and matter and energy, right? Maybe you feel meaning toward it, but even that's just kind of an evolutionary head trip that's there to provide the, the, the perpetuation of the species. There's not actually any meaning in it. There's no difference between a child and, you know, a, a, a lump of coal. It's just matter and energy in different forms. If you're going to be consistent, you have to say that. And so he was wrestling with that because he was a very thoughtful, um, very smart guy. And he was like, yeah. And, and he was struggling with that inherent meaning. And of course, we, we look at that and we say, there's a reason why you look at your kids and feel that. Because they're made in the image of God. They have the stamp of God's design. They are valuable. And it's not just an evolutionary head trip. They've been made in God's image. And, and you know, when you look at the face of an old person, just look in the face of someone made in the image of God. And when you see ultrasounds and you see the face of a baby in a womb, that's someone who's made in the image of God. There's inherent dignity and value to human life because God has made it. And we see God's hand in that. But not only do we see God as the creator, Paul's going on, he's building bridges. Number two, we see God as the, the one who guides and rules over everything. Look at verse 26. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. So he's talking about Adam there, trying to explain it to them. He determined, get this, that the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. And so God has not only made the universe, but he's sovereignly determining and guiding the, the places where people live. And he's guiding human history. We call this in theology the doctrine of providence. It's the idea that God is providentially guiding all things, that in some way that I can't understand, God is over things and he's ruling. He's, he's not only the creator, but he's also the king, and he's guiding and leading everything from the, the biggest events in the world down to, as Jesus says, not a sparrow falls to the ground, but by the will of the Father, the small things, the big things. And he does it in a way that, that I'm still a free agent and my choices matter. You go, how does that fit together? I have no idea. But it's God, and he's great, and he can do anything. And God is guiding and leading things. And people feel that too, don't they? You know, there's not only order in creation, but there's also order sometimes in the events of our lives that we can detect a little bit. This is, people say that today. This is how they say it. This is what you'll hear today. People will say, you know what? Everything happens for a reason. Do you hear people say that? Or, or you know, uh, it's all going to work out. There's a reason. Just, just have faith. It's all going to work out. And people say that. And it's true <laughs> that there is order. And we, we feel that. But now follow the logic. If everything happens for a reason, there must be logically a reasoner who put the reason in place. If there's a purpose, then logically there has to be a planner who planned the purpose. You can't just have a reason without someone who reasoned it. it it's illogical. And so it, it, all these things point back to God. The order of creation points back to God. The, the, uh, 
the order of our lives, that those times in our lives, even crazy times, chaotic times, we're like, what's going on? It's all just random, terrible suffering I'm in. And then five years later, you're like, oh, there was a purpose. And we sense that. That's the hand of God. It's providence that you're detecting there. But God is not only the creator, he's not only the sovereign ruler, but finally he's close. He's a close God. Look at verse 27. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him that is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So Paul begins building bridges. He's quoting their own poets at them. He's, he's using concepts uh, that would have been familiar. That, I don't want to get into the Greek philosophy here, but there's a lot of concepts here that have been familiar to Greco-Roman, Stoic, and Epicurean philosophers. He's trying to help them see what he sees and why idols don't make sense, but he's doing it in a bridge-building, gracious kind of way. And finally, he says, look, God is close to us. He's not way up there on Mount Olympus. I think sometimes we think that, that God maybe made the world, but then he's off doing something else. He doesn't care about us anymore. No, no, God is close. He's right there. We can seek him. We, we might even be able to reach out for him and find him. God has let us know about his existence. Maybe you've sometimes thought, boy, if God is real, I wish he'd just tell us. Man, he's telling us all the time. Like, did you go outside yesterday? It was beautiful. It was perfect, like New England spring day. God was shouting at us yesterday. He was saying, I'm here. You know, and we, and we can't, you know, we don't hear him. Do you know why? Because we're like this all day. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, we're on our phones or we're, we're caught up in our busyness or we're worried about, you know, the, the bills or the plumbing or I got to get this done. And, and we don't stop and, and just listen to, to what God has already told us. Before you even open up the Bible, just listening to the book of nature that God has revealed so much about himself that we could know he's an awesome God and a great God. And God's saying, I'm here, I'm here. Reminds me of the old Dr. Seuss book, Horton Hears a Who. Anyone know Horton Hears a Who, right? And there's that little like puff that Horton finds and on the puff, like it's a little microscopic community of people called Who's or, and, and they're, you can't even see them but Horton's got those huge elephant ears and so he can hear them and they want to destroy it and, and Horton's like, yell louder and all the Who's are shouting, we are here, we are here, right? And that's how it is with God except we're on the puff and he's, you know, shouting, I am here, I am here, Look at the puff, and we're like, what? You know, you know. So we need to listen. God is there. Is it really that God isn't there, or is it that we haven't truly sought Him, sought to know Him? And so God, God is is knowable. There's things we can know about Him. We can know that He's real and He's powerful. Maybe we can know that He's good, that He's a God whom we can relate to, and we can also know that He's not a statue. That's for sure. And so that brings Paul to his, his third turn here, this third phase. So he has crossed the borders, number one. Number two, he's built bridges. But then number three, the third thing he does, lastly, is he turns the corner to the gospel. He starts talking about the gospel of Jesus. So, you know, sometimes you can build bridges and build bridges, but at some point you've got to take the, turn the corner to the gospel. Otherwise, you're kind of building a bridge to nowhere. You've got to get to Jesus. And so eventually he brings them to the good news about Jesus. You can only know so much by looking at the sky. 
But to truly be saved, you also have to hear the, the announcement that God has done more than just made a great creation, but he sent a Savior into the world. And so Paul now turns the corner of verse 29. Therefore, so now he's drawing his conclusion. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think of the divine being as like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. Now he's finally getting to it. So guys, look, really? You really think these statues are God? Come on. The God who made this and who does that, he's not a statue. He's something greater than the universe itself. I love that song we were singing earlier, God of wonders beyond our galaxy. God is not anything in the galaxy. He's the creator of all things. He's great and awesome and holy. And so he's like, it's not like that. Verse 30, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. We have to repent. We have to come to that place of saying, you know, I was wrong, and I've been thinking wrongly about this. And and probably for all of us, there are things we need to repent of when we think of God. We all have conceptions of God, and there's probably nobody here whose conception of God is 100% right. Even we who are Christians, uh, you, you know, maybe we believe the God of the Bible, but is our thinking about God truly shaped by everything the Bible says, or are we not sometimes skewed even in our vision of who God is? So we have to keep coming back and asking, who is God? I want to know him more. I want to understand more rightly who God is, and that's an act of repentance. Maybe it's, it's that first act of repentance where we say, I used to think there was no God, but I think I was wrong. I think there is a God. That's an act of repentance. Or, you know, I used to think that God was kind of just the energy or the universe or whatever you wanted to believe, but you know, I've begun to think that that's wrong, that God is actually a person who can be known and who acts in the world. Or I used to think that that God made the world and then went on a long vacation and has nothing to do with us, but now I know that God is close and that my life is accountable to God and that he's watching me and that there's a judgment and I'll be assessed for my life. So there's a repentance that has to take place. And for these Greeks, it meant no longer thinking that God was a statue, but that he's a living great God who made heavens, the heavens and the earth. And then finally, verse 31, he keeps, he's turning the corner, right? So he's saying, now look, you've got to repent. You've got to change your way of thinking about God. And finally, we get to Jesus. Verse 31, he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. There's coming a judgment day, and the judge that you will stand before is not the higher power of your own understanding. The judge is Jesus. He is the Savior. You say, well, how do we know that? Because he has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. And you have to understand that at the heart of Christianity, at the very epicenter, the the, the very center of the whole Christian belief system is not an idea, it's not a philosophy, it's not a teaching, it's a risen Savior. That's what it is. It's not like the Athenians sitting around talking about ideas. Oh, what do you think of this? And what about that? And I read this on Wikipedia. And oh, yeah, I saw a show once. And it's not that kind of conversation. At the heart of Christianity is not an idea or a theory. It's power. It's a risen Savior. And so we believe in Jesus not just because the idea is interesting or academically intriguing, although it is, We believe in Jesus because he rose from the dead and he's the risen Savior. 
And so to be a Christian is to have a living relationship with the risen Christ, the real living Jesus who reigns and is alive today. Well, that garners different reactions. Look at the last three verses here. We're not surprised by this. We've seen this throughout the book of Acts. There are always mixed reactions to the gospel. Whenever we talk about Jesus and how he died for our sins and rose again, there's going to be different reactions. Here's three reactions. Reaction number one, cynicism. Verse 32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. So there's cynicism. There's some people who are like, whatever. Yeah, you know, is it lunch yet? Are we done here? Can Zariopagus meeting over? This is crazy. Stop, just stop listening to this guy. I came to the wrong meeting today, right? So some people are cynical. Others are curious, number two. Others said, we want to hear you again on this subject, so we need to press in. And by the way, don't be discouraged if people's first reaction is cynicism. It doesn't mean that's the end of the story. Oftentimes, it's just the beginning. Uh, I, I love uh, you know, Dave, uh, who was up here earlier reading the scriptures to us and and praying for us. I love Dave's story of how he became a Christian. He started off as an atheist. And he was coming to church because his girlfriend like dragged him here. And, uh, and he told me that, he's, he's confessed this to me, that when he first came here, he used to sneer at me. He would make fun of me as I preached. And I was like, well, at least he you know, has the decency to be honest, uh, unlike some of you. Uh, but he was like, <laughs> but you, you know, he, he's like, because I thought you thought it was stupid. I used to mock you. And And so sometimes people start off really negative. Don't let that discourage you. Just stay faithful, praying for people, loving people, engaging people. Sometimes that that cynicism gives way to curiosity. We want to hear you again. And then number three, there are some people who are converted. Verse 33, at that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. You know what I love about verse 34? I love that we get the real names of actual people who believed. Isn't that so cool? There was someone back in 50 AD named Dionysius who believed. There's a woman in 50 AD named Damaris who believed. And someday I'm going to meet Dionysius and Damaris. Real people, not just ideas, actual people. So we cross boundaries and we build bridges and we turn the corner to the gospel and there's different reactions. And you know what? It's kind of hard. It's kind of scary when, when you meet someone who's really different and you're trying to figure out how to talk about your faiths and engage on that sort of topic and you want to tell them about Jesus as well. How do you do that? And, and it's hard and sometimes it gets off on the wrong foot and you make cultural mistakes and people are offended and some people walk away and, and, you, and you don't totally know what you're doing and you're like, this is hard, this is not easy, this is not comfortable. Why do we do that? Why, why would we you know, cross the border and build the bridge and all that? That's a lot of work. Right? And some people aren't going to like it. It's going to be negative. And, and even worse, why do some people go as missionaries to other countries? Like it's bad enough just having a one-off conversation here, but imagine having to go to a different culture where the whole culture doesn't get where you're coming from. Why would you do that? It's because Jesus is real and he's saving people. Like that's why we do that is because Jesus 
saved Dionysius. And Jesus saved Damaris. And there are real people that Jesus can save in our lives. Real people. But we've got to take the risk. We've got to trust him. If we keep our mouths shut, well, they won't hear, at least not from us anyway. But if we press in and have faith that the power of the gospel is the power of salvation, don't be surprised as God begins to work. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for teaching us more about yourself. God, I pray that all of us would open up our hearts and our minds to know you better. Wherever we're at in the journey, wherever we're at in the process, whatever we believe, God, I pray that the true God, who you really are, would be made known to us more and more. God, I pray that you give us hearts of curiosity. Help us not just to shut down in cynicism or boredom, but to press in to know who God really is. And Lord Jesus, I pray that you would reveal not only who God is, but that who you are, that you'd help us to see you as the risen Lord. Oh God, give us courage as Christians to really believe the gospel and really love people and be willing to to speak about these things and engage people in conversation, even if it's hard or different. And God, I pray if there's anyone here today who doesn't know if you're real, who doesn't know about Jesus, who's unsure, oh Lord, would you reveal yourself to them? in a way that, that is unmistakable for them. Oh God, be at work in our midst. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.